Hello, and welcome back to Dandelions, a podcast for women. I'm Molly Snyder, and I'm your host here with Julie Davidson, the co-host once again. Hi, Julie. How are you? You know, I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right today. How about you? Good. This is always a highlight, you know, to get together, to see you, to talk with you, and then to talk with our guests. It's just, it's just fun to learn about people. You know? I, I totally agree. I look so forward to this. I wish we could do it every week. So tell people, uh, listeners, to get more listeners for us so we can do this more often. Yeah. we I could, to, I could see us doing this every week. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love it too. And today I'm really excited about our show. I think it's um, a really interesting, almost... It connects to me a little bit with our last show. Our last show was uh, about adoption and it's called Beyond D- DNA. And uh, if you have a chance, um, it's one of my favorite shows, if not my favorite show that we've done so far. It was just mm-hmm. is very important topic to Julie and I. Julie's adopted. I have an adopted son. Uh, but more than that, and it was just hearing about uh, just how different families are formed and how different families exist. And this is going to be another example of that. And we're going to get to hear about what it's like uh, from two women whose parents, or at least a a mother in one case, and a mother and a father in another case, were born in a different country. And what it's like to be the first generation American uh, one of our guests was born in a foreign country, but came here when she was very young. So we're still going to consider her first generation. Uh, before the show, we were talking about what does that really mean? And there is no real definition. So we're using the word first generation American. So you, just so you know what we're talking about. I don't, I don't love it as a, as a term, but we're using it just for clarification. And that is so you understand that we're interviewing women whose parents uh, were not born in the United States. And what kind of role did they take on? Because of that, so do you have any experience with this, Julie? I mean, this is this is very different for me. I was not raised with this. No, but it does remind me a lot of the adoption episode. You know, like from from whence we came, where where people come from, why they are the way they are, who they are. You know, the fabric of of their life. But I've had several friends who their parents were born in another country, and these children were either born there. And came over as infants, or they may have been, you know, born here. And the stories—they're never really fascinated by it, right? Like no one's fascinated by their own story. Everybody else is. But I just, you know, you go in these houses, and it's just the sights and the smells and the language, and it's just—I've always been just overwhelmed with like just curiosity, you know, about that. And then you hear the stories of what it took for some of these families to get here. Right, um, and then took to stay here, and the role the kids had to play, you know, and literally um, having to take on a very adult role. I think in some situations because they may be the ones who are learning English first, and so having to interpret language and cultural standards, or you know, all all of that. So I, I have had a lot of friends who um, who kind of fit that situation, um, and it just to me, it's really been fascinating. And you know, on, on our show, Dandelions a podcast for women, we try and highlight people who we feel or or share stories about strength and resilience because that's what dandelions are, right? Because dandelions don't die, so don't stockpile your your poison for spring because they're going to come back and whatever, just deal with your crabby neighbor. But I've always thought that would take a lot of strength 
to leave a country that you were familiar with, even if you didn't like it, even if things were bad, no matter what reason, you're, you know, but there's something that's everything's familiar and then back up your family and go someplace else. And you might not even know exactly what that looks like, but, but it was worth it. Or maybe you think, you know, and then you get here and you're surprised, you know, maybe you don't like it, but then also um, the children who really, you know, they have the culture and the, and the, um, the background of the parents of, of you know from the country that where they originated from but now they're here in the United States and I don't like the word assimilate I, I, I don't like that word at all but you know I, I think in a lot of cases kids feel that they need to now you know that they've come here so I personally I'm not from another country um, Wisconsin might feel like another country <laughs> right now but um, so yeah I can't wait to talk to our guests the ladies thanks for joining us thanks we're going to introduce me. our guests Thank one you. at a time um, we're going to just introduce them and then we'll have like a four-way conversation. But we'll start off with Ami. Ami, tell us who you are and why you're a guest today on the show. Um, well, again, thanks for having me. I think it's so uh, wonderful that people are having these kinds of conversations right now because I think it really helps us have a deeper understanding of how varied and diverse people's experiences are. And so uh, my name is Ami Betty, and I am a psychotherapist here in Milwaukee. Um, I'm in private practice, and I'm also a consultant. I also had a restaurant for 10 years prior to this. This is my second career. And um, why I'm here? Well, I came to the U.S. when I was three, and uh, but I was so I was conceived in India, born in England, and have grown up in the United States. So it's a pretty fun story um, of. Four continents in one family. So, wow, wow, awesome! I can't wait. I have a million questions for you. Okay, but first we'll go to Monica. Hi, Monica. Hi, I'm Monica Thomas. I work as a teaching assistant with Milwaukee Public Schools. Uh, but my, uh, I guess my lifelong passion is creative writing. So I'm involved in in those circles with poetry and. Um, you know, I love collaborating. I love working with musicians and artists of all types. Um, I am the first, I guess, first gen. Um, when you said assimilation, it made me kind of think Star Trek and maybe I'm the next generation. I'm, I'm the TNG of um, a mother who came from Japan in 1963 after marrying my father, who was in the Air Force, uh, and he's American. I, I sometimes say I'm half Japanese and half Milwaukeean because he really <laughs> brought her from just a tiny little village in Japan into into this here where we've been ever since. So that's why I'm here and I appreciate uh, you bringing, uh, bringing us together and, and kind of challenging me to maybe find my voice and talking about some of these things because really you know you just live your own experience it's not often you have an audience so thank you for everybody listening and that's actually and thank you for sharing that's actually a really good point um monica did you find growing up that you had people who you know you can always say oh look another girl or oh somebody who runs track did you find your experience was similar to other people's did you have anyone to share you know, those experiences with outside your family? I did, but also in sort of an oddball way because my mom practices a Japanese form of Buddhism that back in the day was known as Nishiren Shoshu. And then after 
a mass excommunication in the 90s. They branched off as Soka Gakkai International. Um, long story short, there's a lot of half-Japanese girls whose moms brought them along to these Buddhist events. Okay. So within the context of that Buddhist culture, I met a lot of people who look like me, who had sort of a similar background of some, you know, some, their story, I'm, all the stories I'm sure were very much different, but we ended up, you know, all here in the Midwest, half Japanese, and kind of tagging along with our moms. So from that undercurrent of the religion, I am connected with a lot of other half Japanese women. Um, outside of that, not so much. So I think one of the things I've uh, really been thinking a lot about is how, well, representation is everything, first of all. To have a role model who looks like you, has a similar experience, you know, someone you can relate to. For sure. Um, is something where, you know, I, I feel like I see it more now, but I didn't really see a lot of it growing up. Um, or maybe we'll talk more about that later, but it, it was, it's kind of like um, being Japanese, it's kind of like everywhere you go, you kind of know where to, ex know to expect a certain amount of questioning from people at times. Like there's some stock answers involved in how people may approach me. So that's, you know, that's one of the things that I just had to carry. Um, but I, 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 there's been a lot of misconceptions. And I, th I feel like from other people, but also just from myself, where I kind of have to peel away the layers and kind of figure out, well, what about this you know, aspect of culture was Buddhist and what was Japanese and what was some interpretation of American that, you know, my Polish grandma taught my mom. Like, it's all integrated in me, right? But I spent, I think, a lot of time, you know, especially when I was younger growing up, wondering, like, where, where did all these pieces come from? And how do I fit them all into into myself. And I, I, I don't want to talk for <laughs> the entire time, so I'll let you, I'll let you well, but, steer it along. Well, but Monica, I think that's like such a an important piece that you bring up, right? Which is that the the ways that we present in the world, and I work with so many, I have a lot of clients that are people of color um, who specifically want to have a therapist of color so that they can really unpack this whole notion of identity, right? Because it's it is this like ever fleeting thing that we try and grab onto, but the minute you feel like you grabbed it, you've evolved into the next version of yourself, right? Because we are continuously changing. But, you know, there's, there's like family culture, right? And then there's your, your individual genetic makeup and then your family's culture. And then maybe it's the towns that your parents are from is part of the culture and the place you're growing up. And then there's the country that your parents are from or that, you know, so it's like from the micro all the way to the macro, all infuse us with different components of identity, right? And so, like you said, it, it's continuously changing as you deepen your awareness of how all these different things feed into the unique kind of 
crosshairs of all those things are the individual and identity. Exactly. It's interesting, too, to hear other people's perceptions who are close to you and who maybe were afraid to ask questions or didn't think to ask and then later, maybe later in life, revisit things. I had someone um, who I hadn't seen in years once. I ran into him and he apologized for calling my sushi gross because now he loves sushi. Oh. <laughs> and I used to get nori rolls, rolls you know, in my in lunch my and everyone thought it was, it was disgusting. disgusting. <laughs> well, yeah, that's another question yeah. though. Did you feel that you had to now explain to people you know, here in the United States? Did you feel like you had to speak on behalf of your, you know, culture from your family? Like, did you find that people had a lot of questions? Like, why do people do this from, you know, your country of origin? I mean, did you have a lot of questions when you were younger? Absolutely. And I, I was always glad to share. And my mom was always very, very proud to share anything from her Japanese heritage. And in hindsight, I, I just want to add, sometimes I feel that was tokenism, like they really just wanted a Japanese person to be their concept of what a Japanese person is. And sometimes it's not even, um, you know, it's always an opportunity to to educate someone, to share. But um, like in our case in particular, like uh, my mom would be taken for any other kind of Asian. So they would ask her to wear a kimono and make egg rolls. <laughs> oh, dear. So it's, yeah, I, we actually learned to make egg foo young from the Betty Cracker cookbook because we were supposed to take our food to school. <laughs> so being so kind, being, I think being Japanese, there's just this, this infinite amount of patience and kindness. And you know, to just go along because it might be fun and because that's what they want, you know, to agree, it's like, okay, let's placate everybody. And, uh, uh, you know, again, it's just like such such a blend, like such a mix of mix-ups. And sometimes I say I have a sitcom life and I think, you know, my background just all rolls into that you know, concept of there's there's going to be comedy because there will be so many guffaws that we're just kind of going to forgive and forget or just play along with it. So the point of being offended can... was so far a yeah. concept for my mom that I didn't even realize until I grew up. Like, they asked her to do what? <laughs> And oh my God, that's good what? that you can see the humor. <laughs> I mean, definitely, it's shifted so much. I mean, I think about some of the experiences of like growing up and now looking back, it's horrifying. The things that we were asked, the ways that we were kind of turned into caricatures, right, of, of things that were so extraordinarily diverse. I mean, people will, you know, say, 
you know, such and such question about being Indian. And I think to myself, like in India, I mean, for the longest time, Indian wasn't a concept because there's so many different cultures, um, states, identities within India that you identify, like I'm half Gujarati, half Punjabi, right? And and that's something that um, is really what the identity is. And so for who, what the food is that I ate growing up is completely different from somebody who's say from like an area of South India, right? And so it was just this like homogenization and like putting it, like fitting it into a tiny little can of processed identity, I guess. I would imagine you both, and I even get this, but I would imagine you both had the one question asked, what are you? Where are you Absolutely. from? Right. Those, how did you learn two. to speak? You know, or how did you learn to speak so well? Or what are you doing here? I mean, those, some and some. I understand that people are curious. I think sometimes for me, it's the tone um, and the nature of the relationship. If it's a stranger off the street, that's different. If it's a friend who just said, you know, I've always wanted to ask you, that's that's a little different. I think people right. go into situations, you know, assuming certain things and and not knowing. And I understand people don't know what they know until they know something different. Um, but how did you respond if somebody would say, "Oh, what are you?" Well, and I think that you know you 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 brought up the the key ingredient, right? Which is you can hear someone's intention in their voice, right? You can see it in their body language, and um, and so you immediately get into which way am I responding right now? There is that true earnest curiosity that has zero malice in it, and even if there's even if it's asked in not the perfect way, you you realize that the person is coming with grace and the best of intentions. But then there's the people who are just assholes, right? And they're really trying to just other you. The exactly. question is meant to make it really clear that you are not of us or this, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know mm-hmm. that that's their intention, whether it's conscious or not on their end. Did you ever see your parents having come here as like an added burden? Like, you know... Maybe not as a little kid, but even as you got older, like, well, why do we, you know, I, I feel different. I don't feel connected or, or for what, you know, whatever. This, I may this is be making question. assumptions myself. Julie, I want to jump on the back of that because this is one of my big questions too that I had. And that like, were you ever embarrassed of your parents or were, you know, when, when you were growing up? Um, I know having like two kind of average white parents, I was embarrassed of them enough, you know. And just for the bike my dad rode and, you know, just stuff like that. But I'm wondering if you experienced that kind of embarrassment or you had, uh, getting at what Julie was saying, you, you know, you had these moments. Well, and I think, you know, the teenage years, of course, we're all always embarrassed of our parents. But I realized the other day that, you know, growing up, my parents were fairly well, like they, they really were able to move and code, uh, you know, code switch between Indian settings and white world settings. Um, So that really wasn't as much of an issue. But the one thing that always really was embarrassing for me, and I only now am realizing how much it's about culture, is that my mom was a little bit louder and would like talk a lot and about me and what I should be doing. Just kind of not not critical, but just like, oh, you should do it this way or, you know, you should wear that or things like that. And now I catch myself doing it to my 17-year-old and my 10-year-old and I realize, oh my gosh, that's just like Indian moms. I now realize, <laughs> especially I love Lily Singh. I don't know if any of you have seen her. She's now got like, she's the first brown late night uh, woman 
talk show, and she does these fabulous, fabulous skits of being growing up in an Indian family. And her caricature of her mom is so spot on. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's just this classic way of being a little bit louder. You know, um, a lot of people say like Italian mothers, Jewish mothers, and Indian mothers, there's a lot of commonality in how they, how they're very exuberant in their parenting. And so I realized looking back that that was something that would make me cringe. Um, now realizing that it is very much just a way of actually mothering for Indian moms. I'm half Jewish and half Italian. And so I totally understand, especially being in the Midwest, where there's so many Germans and and Nordic cultures and just more what I call polite cultures and quieter, more reserved. I later found out... um, you know, they sometimes the dark side of that is that they're more passive aggressive. At least we get everything out. But when I was growing up, I was also embarrassed at times of how loudly and expressively my family, um, particularly the women in my family, talked. And now, you know, look, even as I'm, I'm talking now, I, I can't talk without my hands. And that's something that I have learned to love about myself, but it's something that other people have actually told me they found distracting or annoying. And so it is, it, it is, it is tough. But um, how about you, Monica? I will admit to being heavily teased and excluded growing up. And I don't know if, if it was my imagination or not, that that was a lot in part because I didn't fit in with how the people around me, I'm from the suburbs. I was one of maybe three minorities who actually lived in the city where I grew up. And I felt like I didn't fit in and people let me know I didn't fit in. So I was never embarrassed to have my mom. I felt like I had, I had a gem. You know, I had this, uh, this, you know, I, I really believe that, that people, people are jealous because my mom is so great. But at the same time, um, just, Having the features that I do, having the coloring, the slanted eyes, you know, any, anything else that goes with it. You can't take off your race face and look like all the other girls trying out for basketball. You just can't do that. So I'll, I'll say, you know, I wish I had more confidence to just stand tall and say, like, whoever I am, wherever I come from, however I look, I'm here because I want to be here and I have, as much a right as any of you, I didn't have that confidence growing up. And so it, it really did hurt. I'm sorry that happened to you. That shouldn't have happened. And that's just, that's, that makes me, that makes me feel bad that that happened. I think, I think all four of us would have been fast friends, you know, Um, once upon a time. Um, But when things like that happen, either or both of you, did you feel comfortable talking to your parents or did you think it would hurt their feelings? Like, well, we can't change our race, just deal with it. Or did you keep it inside? Well, it was, it's so covert though, right? I, Monica had a similar experience growing up. I was picked on, I was bullied, I was excluded. Um, You know, I grew up in the Burbs, white community, and there were very few other kids of color. And I mean, you know, I saw some of them just kind of like, you keep, you keep, keep your head low, kind of just try and stay out of, 
get, drawing too much attention towards you. Or one, I remember one kid, he was like the class clown, right? And so for me, um, and I think Molly knows me, so you'll know, I, I mean, I, I call myself a Gen X fiery brown shorty. So it's like, I, I <laughs> responded to this by just doubling down on like my punk rock rock mentality, right? Just like, all right, well, I'm out, y'all. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want to do because y'all already don't include me or like me. So that just gave me more permission from the outside looking in to realize how much of a construct this thing called race was in our country. And I, and I, and I really, really recall from a very young age being acutely aware of that. And so I looked at my culture and my parents as like this incredible thing that gave me this uh, depth of identity that I saw so many other people walking around in the community I grew up in where they just didn't really have that. And and there was an ache for it, right? And you look at the, how white culture tries to find that in, in other ways, um, sometimes effectively, sometimes not. But definitely a unique experience, you know. Absolutely. Did your parents know I, about these situations? Did they did they know? Did you make them aware of it? You know, or was oh, it just Well, and you know, I think this is that covert piece is I never there was only I think I can think of like three incidents where it was clear it was about race. But otherwise, it was just this sense of you know, they'll play with me at recess, but I never get invited to the sleepovers, right? Or they'll have my family bring a meal to school for uh, cultural exploration, but we never got invited to anyone's house for dinner, right? So it's like, they'll mine your culture. This was not now, but back then, like our culture and identity was mined for what selectively wanted, like white culture wanted to extract, but don't expect to be able to show up mm-hmm. at the dinner table, right? to get a seat at that table. And so that was that was where it was difficult to uh, identify some of those things growing up. You just believe that you're just like a weirdo or I'm just, something's up with me and that's why kids don't want to play with me or don't like me or don't invite me over. I think we're all a bunch of weirdos. I just, I do, I, but I do believe that you had a, a layer that I did not have, you know, uh, um, had something different, but I find it beautiful. That's why I wanted to do this show because I'm just like, oh my goodness, that's so cool. And I, you know, like I said, the sights, the smells, the sounds, the artwork. Um, and some of my friends were like, what? <laughs> oh, okay. Or their parents would be speaking um, another language uh, other than English on the phone. I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds so awesome. And they're like, actually, they're really upset with somebody right now. It's not so awesome, you know? But um, so I'm, that's just kind of, you know, my my perspective um, like, what advice like would you give to other like young people who might be where you were when you were young, like to to deal with this type of you know overt or otherwise, uh, Monica? Well, one great thing is that we've had so many advances between the time I grew up and say my daughter's generation, where we won't take it anymore. Anti-bullying, you know, just inclusive of all types, supportive of dreamers. The kind of things that happened to me as a child because of my background will not happen to children of my daughter's generation. They won't have it. 
as parents, I think we'd be more likely to be passive and accepting of it if we weren't woke to that idea that no one should have to suffer like we suffered. Mm-hmm. No one, we don't want anyone to feel like we felt because of who they are. Yeah. I mean, so that's I think the that... great thing that rose up out of, I think, out of my pain and my struggle. Absolutely. Is I realized I don't, I don't want that in the world that I bring my children into. Like we can do much better than that. And, and we are doing much better in my community and in the, you know, in the world in general, just even the idea of anti-bullying where 30 years ago, all that kind of teasing and just breaking each other down was considered how we got tough. Mm -hmm. We're much stronger. Right. And we also have like that notion of what back then it felt like, oh, you want my mom, my, my mom's excited that she gets to cook a meal and bring it to the school. At the time it felt like, oh, cool. And people are curious about our our heritage and our culture, but now you start to see so many of those things as being performative or their cultural appropriation and they're called out as such, right? That's the thing is we didn't even have language for what was happening back then. And now we have the language for it, right? Now we have microaggressions and we have cultural appropriation and we have so many different ways that our kids are growing up with that language as just a part of reality and their truth. And so they can call it out too. And I, and I've thought about this so many times. It's like uh, who I would have been and you know, there's always the should have, would have, could have, but who I would have been if I had grown up in a time like we have now where our kids, and it's so imperfect still, but compared to where like when Monica, you and I having similar experiences, what it would be like growing up now, I can't even imagine who I'd be. When you were growing up, what are, and this may be a little bit more of a question for Monica, I I don't know, but um, what were some of your responsibilities uh, in terms of interpreting, in terms of just helping your parents uh, live more comfortably in the United States? Well, I'll bring another layer of this discussion out, which is that my mother didn't learn to speak English until she moved here and immersed herself in it. And she was learning to read English along with me when I was three or four years old. So, and I, my ability to learn and, you know, process the English language, because that was my first language moved faster and moved beyond what she ever learned. So although she can communicate for the most part, my mom is considered, I would think, functionally illiterate. So for most of my life, I witnessed my mom and dad having this codependency that revolved around my mom not being able to read the mail or write a check, or check a nutrition label, or even, you know, when cans look the same, you might get the one that's not supposed to go into the soup. <laughs> you know, just things, things like that happen. You know, and I, I, you know, that's another unique insight, is just when you live with somebody who 
doesn't uh, really uh, who, or who relies on you to be the interpreter. And I say interpreter because I don't speak Japanese. I probably speak less Japanese than kids who watch anime. But I've always had to explain things in a way that my mom would understand better than whoever had originally said it. I'd have to read things thoroughly before she signed. At this point, now that you know she's um, she's older, she's I'm I'm her I'm the business of the household. I moved back in what I thought would be temporarily when my father passed away and she didn't have him to function the way he was with taking care of the business of the house. I knew I can never leave. That's, that's good. I'm in the place where I need to be to take care of the people I love and it works, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, I feel sometimes like who would I be if I didn't have this responsibility? Where would I be in the world? There's even, you know, the stereotypical thing about the, the youngest Asian daughter being the one to stay home and take care of the elderly mom. And that's what I'm doing, but it's what you got to do. But it goes even farther because um, I wonder sometimes, you know, I'm a writer. Would I be so, so uh, focused on... On that sort of thing, if I hadn't been pushed to be her reader, and, I, you know, I questioned, like, is that even really my interest, or is it just my strength, because it was cultivated for so long? So, I think at a point, all I can do is say, okay, I'm good at this, I like it, I'm going to do it. And in whatever directions that helps anybody in the world, especially, you know, my choice people, keep doing it. How about you, Ami? Did you have a role as a child or growing up? Was there things, maybe anything with pop culture maybe your parents didn't know? Or, I mean, or were they just pretty, pretty with it? <laughs> my mom was pretty with it. My dad pop culture not so much yeah <laughs> but you know i think that my mom grew up in tanzania um and so you know as an indian woman there there was a lot of brought there her family was brought there by the british during the building of the railway and such and so there was still a lot of the british culture so you know language was never an issue my parents both grew up learning and speaking um, English, you know, product of a post-colonial world uh, with the British colonization of India. But um, but no, I don't feel like there were any, any real responsibilities that I had that were due to our culture. Are you bilingual? That is one of my biggest kind of sadnesses is that we spoke English in the house growing up, but my parents spoke two different, not because they each spoke two different dialects, but with friends, they would speak one dialect and with each other another. And so I kind of learned a little bit of each of them, but never got immersed. And so I never have fully been able to, I'm conversational when I go to India, I get by just fine, but um, but I get a lot of chuckles because I mosh these mishmash these two dialects together. So, but it, it's a huge um, loss for me to not have the language. 
And I've tried I was gonna... to learn as an adult. And I let me tell you, I almost failed French. I took four years of Latin. Language is not my thing. <laughs> not good at learning languages. I tried to. I tried to learn Japanese to have a better connection with my mom. And, uh, you know, I still have a lot of, like I said, the Japanese Buddhists who I can practice on and my hope was just to kind of more like lean more towards the whole experience of both sides of my like but um one of the one of the harshest <laughs> one of the harshest comments i got was someone a, a sweet little old japanese woman not my mom looking at me and she kindly bowed and said monica son japanese does not come out of your mouth <laughs> <laughs> so no, no. <laughs> and the weirdest thing is because i had studied so much spanish when i couldn't find a way to say something in japanese i would go to spanish before english like cheating but not quite <laughs> so it was so horrible just so so horrible but my daughter is learning Japanese by choice, and and she loves it. So perfect. She's yeah. she's picking up where I, I I just couldn't carry that torch. You know, I I also had that experience with the language thing, where um, now there's such a grace from older Indian people or other Indian people, where when they realize that I'm not very good at it they will help me and they are super patient and they'll like make really sweet kind of jokes about it. But when I came here, there was such a very small Indian community in Milwaukee and in the Midwest that when, um, you know, when I was a teenager and, uh, I remember vividly, I, I was down in Chicago and I went into a gas station and the gas station owner was Indian. And when he saw my credit card and saw that I had an Indian last name, he started speaking to me in Hindi. And when I couldn't respond to him, he was indignant. He, he basically said, you know, what kind of an Indian are you? We're losing our culture and all this. And that was more the response I used to get um, from Indians like when I was younger around, you know, doing it right, being doing Indian the right way. Whereas now it's really much more of a diverse experience where people realize that it's a whole new identity when you're a first gen. I have a little bit of hesitation about the thought of traveling to Japan, even though I would like to go some someday. My mother has never returned since moving to the United States. She really immersed herself in everything American, and she had to force herself to not speak Japanese in order to learn English. So I think just that culture clash and identity crisis just cut off connections for her. Um, but I'm curious. There's a whole half of my family I'm trying to find and get in touch with. But I fear that, you know, that I'd, I'd be an insult to the Japanese people to return so Americanized, I just feel like, oh no, now they're all going to know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dumb. I just can't speak the language, even though I look like I should be here. And being, being half Japanese, that happens to me really in any sort of Asian, like 
situation, like in Chinatown, I've had people come at me with different dialects as, this one do you speak? This one do you speak? "Mm, Only English. (laughs) Sorry, only English. I feel like I'm at a loss because I just haven't done the work to learn. You know, I would love to fit in more into that culture, but again, because of my mom cutting off her connection with anything Japanese, I wasn't brought up with the language. Well, that's another thing I wanted to ask you both, even though, you know, you were, your parents were immersed here. Um, is there anything, and maybe you didn't think about it as a kid, but something that you just really treasure? Is there something about uh, the culture um, of your parents that you still celebrate or you are really grateful that you have? For me, absolutely. I feel like the things that I do that I know are Japanese are so like precious and just really I don't know. I kind of I kind of protect that side, maybe because I don't know that much of it. But some things that we've just always taken for granted, like take, taking your shoes off in the house or you know, eating certain things with chopsticks that where other people might use a fork. Like I would never do some of those things. And I'm really glad that I have some of that handed down just through mom's habits, even if she didn't intend to make me Japanese like her, that it just couldn't be stopped. I love that I I can identify some of those things and know exactly that I got them from my mom. Mm-hmm. Love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Ami, what about you? Oh, Anything I, mean, that I think you... that as you're growing up, again, you don't really realize that these are things that are culturally bound. You realize with some of the obvious things. But now I think, I mean, there are so many things that I just cherish that are that are clear for me, like where they came from. And I look at my kids and how, you know, we can talk about all the... Hindu gods and goddesses without even thinking twice about it. And my, you know, my little guy, he he is so um deeply fluent in in the Hindu's stories and um and such. And I and the food is second nature and the smells and the colors and the sounds and it's just uh it, different ways of moving, right? There's different ways of moving your head or your body um that are just so deeply reflexive that it's hard to, to, to figure out and how to separate out the things that are from my Indian heritage and what is just kind of authentically a, a new way of being in the world. It's too many things to count. Lots of things. Lots. You guys, um, does your family celebrate Christmas or what do you do on Christmas? Especially, I said, from a Midwest perspective, as someone who doesn't celebrate Christmas, I kind of lonely. And I know a lot of people, myself included, kind of find their own way to celebrate Christmas. Um, I'm just wondering how how your families have handled it. I've been thinking about this so much lately, Molly. It's It's been uh, very much on my mind. Thinking back to, because it was just Diwali um, this past weekend, and Diwali is like the, the, the biggest Hindu kind of celebration of the year. Um, and Knowing that growing up, I mean, there wasn't a day off for Diwali. You didn't get to stay, you you know, school just went on as usual and parents did what they needed to do as usual. And 
you weren't given the opportunity to pause for what was needed to be paused for, right? And so, and then I went to a school that, although it was technically not a religious school, it was very much like a Christian Catholic sort of framework. And so we did a, a, a Christmas music program every year. And so I remember vividly all of the Indian families in the community, um, a lot of us would get together and it, we'd do Christmas with Christmas trees and the whole nine yards. And part of that was, it's kind of like you take all the things throughout the year that you wish you had the space and time to honor and you kind of put all that effort and emphasis onto the, you know, onto Christmas to make up for all those different things. And um, and now I, I try and figure out how to make uh, create balance for our family, and still now trying to create new traditions and and celebrations for those days like Diwali that are so deeply important, and keeping Christmas. You know, both my boys have fathers that are white, and so that's still a huge part of their family and their traditions. But there's also this whole other thing that I'm trying to now cultivate. Uh, a presence for in our story and in our lives. And in my family, we love silliness. We love theatricality and pageantry and celebration and food and downtime. So we celebrate Christmas any way we feel like it, which is kind of... You know, I think we we we're kind of punks about Christmas. Like we take it and we just bastardize it. And <laughs> <laughs> if it works, it works. If it doesn't, whatever. And when people come at us and they're just confusingly churchy or whatever, the ones the neighbors brought us <laughs> leftovers from a cake that said "Happy Birthday, Jesus," and we're like, "Cake, <laughs> thank you." <laughs> We'll just take whatever feels good and happy. And I think we're fortunate on the Northern Hemisphere to have Christmas when it's snowy and cold instead of summertime like in Australia, because it's just a pick-me-up. It's just an excuse to have fun. And and that's what that's what we've always celebrated, just Whatever, people are being goofy. Let's go along with them. I mean, who needs an excuse to like eat lots of food and open a present or two and hang out with the people you love? I mean, Mm -hmm. no excuses needed. I'll take it. I'll take it anytime. Well, I could go on and listen to you women for hours, um, but we're going to wrap this up now. this, this is where we are in 2020 as we're working and recording from home. I apologize for the chihuahuas in the background. Um, <laughs> I can't chihuahuas need loving too. has been quiet. My dog is normally so beastly with his barking and he has been silent. I have usually the reverse. So today, it's, of course, they're out of control. But um, <coughs> anyway, I just... I really got reclamped hearing some of these stories and I really, um, I know there isn't really anything I, I can do other than help create platforms like this for stories like the ones that you just told. Um, but I certainly want to do more of that because just, um, I don't know, I like everyone in this discussion so much and to think of anyone being bullied or like 
little Ami or little Monica being like left Could out. I add even one though thing? I felt out too, but um, not in the same way. Yeah, when I mentioned that, I think I'd be at a loss if I didn't also give a shout out to the friends who have always embraced me for who I am and not tried to dissect me for what I am and what a compliment it's been to, you know, and really what a nice sieve, like what a nice way to test the quality of a person, <laughs> you know, for, by how they, how accepting they are and, and how generous in spirit and lacking of, uh, you know, or shy of judgment. I had several mm -hmm. friends, strangely, tell me that when I, you know, when we were younger, they thought my parents were John and Yoko and I'm, I'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I know, I think I feel the same way that I had these and I didn't find these people till high school. Right. But then I eventually, um, you know, my dearest friend in the whole wide world, I just saw her uh, last weekend and we've been friends since we were 15. And not only was it such a blessing to have people that, mm, frankly, weren't, you know, full of implicit bias um, or were, but they were able to like keep it in, in context and, and not judge by that. But um, like deeply reverential and curious and wanted to understand and learn. And like my friends were learning the basic language so that they were able to respectfully be in our space and they were learning the traditions and they would do prayer with us when we would do that. And, you know, that that's where it makes all the other stuff kind of paltry when you realize the beautiful gift of those friends and those people that have been in my life growing up. Oh, here's my dog now, finally. We summoned him. Yes. I, I tempted fate, didn't I? Yep, yep. Well, again, this has been a really beautiful conversation. Thank you for joining yes. us. And yeah, thanks yes. for having me. Thank you. Have rich stories, and you bring so much. And you know, race matters, representation matters. But I always say about race, we talk about it because it's a cool thing. I want to know more. I want to know about your heritage, your ethnicity, right. all all of that. And it's not something that people need to shy away from or be afraid of. But thank you for sharing your experiences, your stories. I wish there are some little girls watching right now who would look at you know both of you, beautiful women, strong strong people, that they could say, "Oh wow." That that's going to be me, you know, or I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm not alone. So um, and that's probably what we try and do most with the podcast is let other people know, um, sharing other people's stories, but letting people know you're not alone. If you feel like this, guess what? There's there's some others, and there's something to be said for that and and strength. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to say thank you to you, our listeners. We want to say we appreciate you so much. And if there's ever anything that you want us to cover as a topic or you want to give us some feedback, please reach out. We are on Facebook, Dandelions, a podcast for women. We have an email address. It's dandelions at onmilwaukee.com. We're also on Instagram, Dandelions Podcast. Uh, thank you to On Milwaukee for supporting this. Thank you for mm -hmm. Go Get It Media. Uh, Julie and I are uh, forever grateful for the opportunity to uh, take this platform and, and use it uh, for whatever we want. So. Right. The good stuff. It's, the good stuff. Yep. So we're, we're using it for good. We hope we're using it for good. We yeah. think we're using it for good. So, but again, it's a lot of time and energy and money that goes into this and we really appreciate everyone who does their part. So 
We'll be back uh, next month with a topic to be determined. That's how Julie and right. I roll. <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? There's okay, no spreadsheets. Let's do it. You're right. There's no long term. Those are really awesome spreadsheets. You know, I've <laughs> never been a spreadsheet girl myself. So I, you know, I just, that's the way I go. I just buy the seat of my pants. And somehow, I feel just, like, like we outdo ourselves every time, though, Julie. Like, I'm like, oh, this is now my favorite conversation ever. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. I just think we touch upon a lot of really cool things and um, necessary conversations, for sure. I feel like Molly, you took a you took notes when we met before the first before you recorded the first podcast, and you had a you week. There was a list of topics that was pretty long. It was brainstorming a good list. sessions. Yes, I am. I yes, I love that. And you know, I wish I knew where that was actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the problem. I'm just extremely just disorganized. There is that notebook. But we have, we have um, like, circled back. Or we've forgotten about some of those topics. Like, the adoption show was like that. And then we're like, oh, my gosh. That was the top of our list. And then we we're so excited to do it. So I think they're all getting done. But we're, we're, we're talking about what we really need to and want to talk about. And, and we've just had amazing guests. Amazing guests. So thank you again. Thank you and so much. Everyone out there, stay safe. Talk to you soon. Woohoo!